Welcome to Bill Bronchick's Real Estate Investing Podcast. Mr. Bronchick is an attorney, best-selling author, and a real estate investor with 25 years' experience. For more information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com. Okay, so today we're going to talk about marketing on a shoestring budget, how to get real estate investing leads without spending a ton And of course, if you have more time, these will be more useful for you. If you have more money than time, then, you know, you have a budget. You could spend more on things like mailers and uh, and lead sources, maybe a virtual assistant to make calls for you. Um, If you have no time and no money, well, you're just going to have to make some time. (laughs) So here's marketing on a shoestring budget. First, before we talk about... um, what the sources of these marketing are let's go through some preliminary issues like what are you looking for are you looking for single family you look for multifamily you look for condos you looking for flips you're looking for rentals i mean you're looking for subject twos first before you're going to market you have to know what it is that you're looking for so you know where who when to market um who is your target customer yeah. Is there a specific type of person? Is it someone in foreclosure? Is it someone who's in a divorce? Is it someone who's high end, low end in terms of price? Uh, know who your target customer is. What is your farm area? What are the particular zip codes that you're willing to look at houses in for fix and flip versus rentals? And most importantly, what is your USP? What is your unique selling proposition? What makes you different from all the other investors that may contact a particular seller who's in distress? So you have to decide how you're going to be different from everybody else. Are you going to be faster? Are you going to be cheaper? Are you going to be um, more ethical, more helpful, more support. What it, it you, know, you have to decide what it is that's going to make you stand apart from everybody else. And with that in mind, let's go through some of the marketing strategies that you can do for almost free, most of them. The first is passing out business cards. Now, a lot of people either A, don't have a business card or have a really cruddy one. Most people go to vistaprint.com. I like them, but everybody does the same thing. They pick the first design out of 5,000 real estate designs, which is a cartoon row of houses that everybody uses. And uh, they put very basic information on there and there's nothing on the back. That's good real estate, the back of the card. You should say on the back of the business card what it is that you do. What is your unique way of doing it too, your USP. So what I do is I put on the back of my business card, we buy problem properties. That's my USP. Okay. So do you have a house that is behind in payments, title problems, uh, physical problems, needs work, relatives living rent free, tenants living rent free. So what I specialize in is problems. And really, that's what we all specialize in as investors, solving people's problems. But that's the way I I, uh, um, propose it to a potential motivated seller or someone who has my business card, they would know to pass it on to a motivated seller. And that's why it's so important that your business card really spell out what it is that you do with the brand name of your company, with the 
message you have on the back of the card. Uh, I wouldn't even bother putting addresses on business cards these days. Just put them, put your name and your phone number and your email nice and big on the card so people can read it. Uh, everybody puts in little tiny font their address, their facts, there are all these things that are just not that important. Um, so having a, a business name that is applicable, uh, that says what your USP is, a lot of people make up names like Home Vestors. You've seen that franchise, Home Investor, Home Vestor. So, you know, that's cute. That's a unique selling proposition that they have. Um, we buy ugly houses. Well, we, you can say we buy all houses. We buy pretty houses. I buy problem houses. So uh, what it is on your business card, that should have a name that is relevant to your USP, maybe a tagline of your business under it and maybe uh, a logo and your picture like a realtor would have. I, I like doing that because at the end of the night after you've gone to like a real estate club or landlords meeting or a seminar and you empty your pockets and you have all these business cards that people gave you, you don't remember who's who, but if there's a picture on there, you, oh yeah, I remember that one. That That's the guy or gal that we talked about such and such. And on the back of the card, it says what you do. Now I have two business cards, one that we give out to homeowners or give out to people who might give to a homeowner. And that's the, we buy problem properties card. I have an identical one, identical on the front, but different message on the back that I give to other investors. So if I go to a RIA meeting or a landlord meeting or an auction or whatever, and I'm going to hand out a card to another investor, it says I buy the following properties in the following areas and I put you know subject to seller financing um, commercial in these zip codes blah 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 so that way when I hand it to another investor they don't have to remember when they empty their pocket at the end of the day what it is that I do that I'm looking for because it's right there on the business card so you should have a goal of, of putting out at least at least 500 business cards a month I know that sounds like a lot but Start simple. Start with 100 a month. That's three a day. Everywhere you go, you know, every place that has a bulletin board, um, in the supermarket, at the, the laundromat, at the local uh, five and dime store, if, if you want to call them that, convenience stores, um, be, don't be shy about giving out your business card. Uh, my mom used to embarrass me all the time when we used to go out to lunch, and she'd put a card in with the check you know, for the, for the meal. And, and I would say to her, what do you, what do you think the waitress has a house to sell? She says, no, but she might have a parent or a friend or an aunt or an uncle has a house to sell. All right. She would go so far as to stick cards in the utility bills that she would mail out or credit card statements. Cause who's, who's filtering that out? Not the CEO of the company, but people on the lower end of the spectrum financially. So yeah, you know, pass out as many as you want as many as you can spend a little bit on business cards. Don't be cheap. You know, a lot of people spend 15 or 20 bucks for business cards. You could spend 40, 50, 60 bucks to get them thicker, glossier, or, you know, uh, something, something extra nice that people will remember. I had a friend of mine who was a, a real estate agent. And what he would do is before he handed his card to people, he would take a hole puncher and punch a hole. And of course the person he handed it to would say, What's with the hole? He says, I sell a whole lot of houses. You know, that's cute and funny, you know, sort of. But they're going to remember them. 
they definitely got to remember them when they see the punched hole in there. Okay. Um, brokers, real estate brokers and agents. Uh, we'll call them Realtors for short, even though Realtor is a someone who's a member of the board of Realtors. A Realtor can, quote, get you stuff for free on the off of the MLS. Now, it's not totally free. They are, whether they're representing the seller or they're representing you as a buyer, they're splitting this, the listing agent's commission. But to you as the buyer, you know, scanning through the multiple listing and looking at houses, there's no upfront cost to you per se. Now, I would suggest if you are going to play the game with a buyer's agent, meaning, you know, you're going to make like 20 or 30 offers a month, uh, most of them that won't get accepted or even countered because they're so low. Um, how hard is this realtor going to work for you if they're not getting paid or maybe one out of 30 gets accepted and they get a 4,000 or a $5,000 commission. Is that really worth all their time? Um, I would suggest if you're going to use a lot of the realtor's time, especially getting comps, pulling leads for you, et cetera, et cetera, making offers, offer them a per offer fee. So at least they're getting paid for their time. So what if you paid them $25 for each offer that they submitted for you, or $50 per offer? So what's $50 times 30? That's that's $1,500 a month, which is really relatively cheap if you think about it, to have a professional out there filtering through the MLS, previewing houses, and making you offers. I, mean, I can't imagine if you made 30 offers, you wouldn't at least get a bite after two months. That's three grand worth of... Uh, paying basically for someone to do work for you in the real estate business, um, I, I think would be worth it. It would be worth it. So, um, you know, set your expectations up front, what you want from the realtor. Um, if they don't sound excited about all the work they have to do to get you a good deal, then, as I said, just give them, offer them a little money. The next one would be calling Fizbo's on things like Craigslist and other websites like Zillow, um, Trulia, Redfin, and other websites, Realtor.com. They don't always have the phone numbers. A lot of times they just have the phone number of the listing agent. But on Craigslist, in most cases, someone who's listing a for sale by owner is going to list it and put their phone number down. A lot of times they mask the phone numbers in the other websites. Now, Fizbos are a tough nut to crack, especially on Craigslist. Now, why would someone list it for sale by owner as opposed to with a realtor? Um, yeah, that would baffle me because 99% or 98%, depending on the area you're in, of properties that sell, sell on the MLS with a realtor. So why would you sell it on your own? Well, I, first of all, that's a question I'd ask when you talk to the seller. Could be anywhere from, well... I'll, I'll see if I could sell it on my own first to save a commission. And then if that doesn't happen, I'll list it. You know, that tells you something about the seller. They want the most money out of the property and they're not that motivated. Um, if they say, well, I did list it for three months or six months and it didn't sell. And now I'm trying to do it on my own. Well, that's good. That shows motivation of the seller. Or um, if the seller says, I owe too much. I, I, there's no room for a commission. Well, that could be a potential subject to or a short sale. So, Calling Fizbo's and getting an idea of one, first, you know, are they living in this plane of reality or some other plane of reality in terms of what they think the house is worth and what they should get? 
Um, I'd be careful about saying you're an investor up front in the beginning and that you buy lots of houses because that's going to put their guard up. I would be more in the camp of I'm looking for a house in this neighborhood to purchase. And that's it. Don't say you're an investor. Don't say you buy lots of houses like theirs and you can close quickly because most of them will put their guard up as soon as they hear that. Also, once you learn if the seller is living in this plane of reality um, and they're asking something that's not totally outrageous, you might want to set up an appointment to see the house, depending on their level of motivation. Again, remember, you're calling them. They're not calling you. Totally different conversation. So even though they're advertising on Craigslist, it doesn't necessarily mean they're that motivated. You got to ask the right questions. Follow the script that we've given to you. Calling furbos for rent by owners on Craigslist and other sites. I find this to be a lot easier and a lot more fruitful. You're, who are we dealing with? Well, you want to look through Craigslist and look at the landlords that are just look like looks like just a husband and wife team or just an individual Joe landlord, no property management company renting his own properties. This is good for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, if it's an older guy or gal or couple, they might own it free and clear and might be willing to sell or finance. Uh, number two, if they're advertising, we know one thing for sure, the property's vacant. So maybe they had a recent bad experience with a tenant, which you'll want to ask about and maybe throw a little salt in the wound and you know, see how motivated they are. You know, what landlord hasn't thought when their property is vacant and now might be a good time to sell? And also, you might hit the jackpot. You might find a landlord with a half a dozen properties that will sell them all to you as a bundle. So I think calling furbos is much more fruitful. And it's much easier. Fizbos are hard because they're, you know, these are knuckleheads, a lot of them. Furbos are other landlords. So you just call them up and say, listen, uh, so you're out on Craigslist for the property for rent. Um not looking to rent it myself, but I'm a landlord like you. Do you have any interest in selling? Keep it simple. And you can have a straight up conversation, investor to investor. No, you know, hiding your motivation, no suspicious investor uh, attitude by the seller and so forth. Bandit signs is another way. Uh, now, these are not free, but if you get them in bulk, they're about a buck each and then the little... Um, depending on what stake you use, if you use the wire H hangers, H shaped hangers, those are about a buck to two bucks each, depending on um, uh, how many you buy. Uh, definitely election day is a good one, a good day to get free ones because there, there's thousands of them all over the place. So keep that in mind uh, in November. Um, or you can use with bandit signs, you can go to Home Depot and just get wooden stakes and staple gun it to the stake. Now, the only problem with that is you don't get both sides of the sign when you do that. But if you only need one side, then it's a moot point. Well, putting bandit signs, uh, you know, reasonably a reasonable number, which would mean in a particular uh, farm area of a couple of zip codes, maybe... Uh, 50 to 75 signs a month. I think more than that, you're risking generating too much attention. I think if you're doing less than 20 a month, you're probably not not putting enough up because most signs get either A, stolen or cut in half by 
competitors or just kooky people who don't like signs. There's actually a whole website devoted to these people. Uh, they're, they're just nutso. Um, but we don't care if they slash them or steal them or throw them out because they're, they're a buck and change each, depending on what, what uh, you use to affix them to the ground. Don't put them on stop signs um, or traffic signs because the Department of Transportation will really get on you. You can get a sign stapler, which is a, about a four foot long stapler gun that has a little hook that you can put your bandit sign on and hang it high on a telephone pole. It's real good because people who try to take it and steal it or throw it out, it's hard for them. They got to stand on the hood of their car to reach it. So very effective. Um, I wouldn't put them, you know, eight of them in one intersection either. Again, you, you don't want to attract too much attention to yourself. Uh, with bandit signs. Now, first, before you do this, you got to know what the penalty is. They're called bandit signs for a reason. They're, in most areas, um, there's a, a code enforcement would prohibit them. Now, this, this is not a felony. We're talking about a fine. The, it's good to know what the fine is. What you know, don't if you can't do the time, then don't do the crime, so to speak. If it's a fifty dollar penalty first time and $100 second time, uh, I'd take that risk. You know, if third time is a is a misdemeanor and they throw you in jail, then, well, I wouldn't want to do that, okay? Um, a lot of areas don't police on weekends, so if you put them up Friday afternoon right before rush hour or Saturday morning and take them down by Sunday afternoon, you'll get away with it a lot more because code enforcement usually doesn't work week weekends. And a lot of the builders do that too. They put them up on weekends and a lot of the realtors put up open house signs and so forth. Um, networking, one of the best ways and free ways. There's nothing better than a referral to a motivated seller from someone that they know. So networking would be including going to uh, RIA meetings, landlord meetings, uh, seminars, workshops, uh, conventions, not just real estate, but maybe other business conventions where you're the only investor, so they know what you do and everybody in that group is going to potentially refer you business because you're the only one they know. So networking is real important because you can get referral business and referral business, as we said, is the best type of lead. The next cheap or actually free one is Facebook. Facebook has groups and you could join these groups and get potentially referrals. You can refer people to them. Uh, you could also use it as uh, a way to educate the public while still getting leads. For example, if you wanted to have a Facebook group called Cincinnati Foreclosure uh, Info, and people who are in Cincinnati could you know, ask questions who are in foreclosure on the group, uh, and that's great. You're giving them free advice. You know, you don't want to give them too much advice, but you want to give them some tips about like, you know, when do they have to be out of the house? Is just do they have to be out right now, or can they wait till the foreclosure is finished and the sheriff posts a notice and so on and so forth? Um, but you're getting a, a, a targeted crowd of people who are going to like and trust you because you're answering questions for them. Now, the only thing I have to to, to warn you about with that is some states have what's called for foreclosure consultant laws. And you don't want to be one of those. If you're a foreclosure consultant, then you can't buy the property in most states that have the statute. So on that group, just make, be careful. You're not going to 
give advice as to how to stop the foreclosure, delay the sale, or anything like that. Just yeah, offer, you know, general advice about the process. You know, this is the process. This is what you should expect. This is what commonly happens and so forth. Not specific advice to any specific people. And if they do want it, then have, tell them to have them contact you on your email or your phone and then talk to them. Maybe, you know, make a deal. Driving for dollars. Good way to go. Just driving around neighborhoods looking for overgrown weeds, boarded up houses, or dilapidated houses that look like they're in trouble uh, physically. Door knocking, probably one of the best ways you can do it, even money or no money, door knocking is probably the best and most fruitful way to find leads because you're right there. I mean, there's nothing, people are using Facebook, texting, messaging, email, you know, that's, that's, Good if that's if that's the only way you can contact someone, but the idea with that is not to have a negotiation on those on those uh, systems, but to make a phone appointment so you can talk to them by phone and eventually meet them in person. There's nothing like meeting someone in person. So when you knock on doors, you could do it a multiple multitude of ways. You could uh, pick up a list of foreclosures in your area and knock on those doors. You could just pick a neighborhood and randomly knock doors, say, hey, I'm looking to buy a house in the neighborhood. You know anyone wants to sell? There's really nothing for sale here, which is true. Um, you know, just make friends with people. You never know who knows who and who knows what. Well, I, you know, so-and-so down the street, I think uh, they're in foreclosure or they're behind on payments, so they said they were going to walk away from their house. Uh, and it's not If it hasn't been filed for foreclosure, that's inside information you got. Door knocking can be very effective if you do it the right way. Uh, a couple of tips on door knocking. Number one, um, if you're a guy, um, I'd suggest you bring someone with you, preferably a woman. Uh, especially if the person answering the door is a woman, they're not going to let a man in their house that they don't know. Um, it's much more trustworthy if they see a couple. If you're a woman, fine, bring a man or bring another woman. That's fine. Uh, if you're a man, you don't have a woman to bring, bring your teenage son. At least that looks more like a family, less like, you know, a single dude who might be a serial killer. <laughs> um, also, uh, make sure you give the idea of a door knock is not to get in the house. It's just to have a conversation. So it's a substitute for a phone call and a, a, a chance to meet someone and see the house a little bit. So at the very least, if they open the door, you could peek in and see what they got. They might offer you a tour. Don't push for one. But the idea is to get an appointment. If you knock on a door, someone who's in foreclosure, and say, hey, uh, has anyone explained the process to you? Do you have some time maybe tomorrow or Thursday where we could sit down for maybe half hour and talk about what your options are? Okay, um, and that's it. And then tell them, you know, hand them a list of a punch list of, of, of pieces of information and documents that they'll need to have gathered before the meeting. And then make sure you get your phone number and call and confirm the meeting. Um, that's the best way to do it. Don't try to barge your way in and get them to sign a quit claim deed over the table if they're in foreclosure. That's just, it's just too high pressure. It's not going to work. Now, a lot of times you will door knock and people aren't home. So what do you do? Well, a lot of amateurs, especially with people in foreclosure, they'll leave a business card. They'll leave a 
fancy color brochure, and those get thrown out. Keep it simple. Post-it note on the door. Bob, need to talk to you about the house. Bill, phone number. Simple. Real simple. And it looks like someone personally left it, even though you could get post-it notes um, that you could put through your laser printer on a mail merge um, with the name and your address and a handwriting font and everything that looks really like someone wrote with a Sharpie. That's, that's what it should look like. And it should look a little hokey, a little amateurish. Um, you don't want to come off too slick, just friendly and helpful. So post-it notes could be another one. Um, now, what you could do is you could pay your kids or your nephew or neighbor's kid to just pop it on all the doors. You give the address and and then follow it up with maybe another one uh, four, three or four days later and then a door knock and then a door knock. Um, or you could just go for the door knock and, if, you know, probably 50% or either aren't at home or won't answer the door, you just stick the post-it note. Also, while we're on foreclosures or any other list, you can cross-reference their name and address into the phone databases online and find a working phone number and call and cold call. Now, that's a little tougher than, you know, because people are nicer in person than they are on the phone. Um, when you cold call, a lot of people will hang up on you. Um, they're not as belligerent as they are honestly, an email. When you email someone, oh my God, that's like a violation of their privacy. You know, they'll call you every name in the book with four letters. Uh, you speak to someone on the phone, they might be a little rude, but they'll usually be a little nicer. But when you speak to people in person, door knocking, I've had very few people tell me to go buzz off and slam the door on me. Very few. I mean, it's happened. You know, I've had people tell me to get lost. Um, I've had people slam doors in my face, but I'd say a good 70 to 80% of people are, are perfectly nice. They step out on the doorstep, they have a conversation with me, and, uh, you know, some number of those I'm able to convert into appointments. So those are some of the shoestring ways, not the entire list, but passing out business cards, real estate brokers, calling FISBOs on Craigslist, calling FURBOs, bandit signs, networking, Facebook groups, driving for dollars, door knocking, post-it notes, and cold calls. Um, that right there, if that's all you did, it wouldn't cost you much, and you'd have a lot of deals if you spent, you know, four or five hours a week at this at, at a minimum, maybe closer to seven to ten hours a week on this. You can really get some deals going. Uh, on a shoestring budget, absolutely. And some final thoughts on this. Um, Follow-up is the key to making deals. It, it takes more time, money, and effort to find a new lead than to work on an existing lead. So if you talk to someone once, at, whether it be a phone call, a door knock, or they called you, or you called them, whatever it is, they may not seem interested now. But you have to follow up on them because at some point they may be on the fence and they may be able to be pushed one way or another. You can't talk someone into doing something that they're not already inclined to do. So no matter how good of a talker and negotiator you are, if someone's not motivated, if they're not ripe, R-I-P-E, that's what they call it in the sales business, if they're not ripe, meaning ready to make a, a buying decision or selling decision, then you're not going to be able to persuade them. The idea is to get them at the right place at the right time when they're ripe and ready 
And how do you be at the right place at the right time? Well, by consistently following up with this person by text, by email, by call, by postcard, by letter. Uh, if you have to send them a Western Union or a stripogram, <laughs> telegram, whatever, you know, just keep the, the contact with them. So when they finally ripen, the odds are that you'll be fresh in their mind. Um, don't be afraid to make offers. So many people are, do so much research and they forget the bottom line when they meet with someone is to make an offer. So don't be shy about making an offer. Even if you think they won't take it, I always leave a seller with an offer. And finally, track your effectiveness of your shoestring marketing. What is working? What is not working? And what is it costing you per lead? Meaning if someone calls you or you call them and make an appointment, what is it costing you per appointment or per call if they're calling you? Or how much time do you spend per lead? So have some way to track this. You can't manage what you can't measure. So have some yardstick to measure this all so you know what's working. Not a guess, but good math and statistical data that you keep track of so you know what's working. And just do more of that. Information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com.